0: Just visit the app store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to baysidechapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. Well, I want to open up this morning just talking about kindness, kindness is an extraordinary gift, especially when one person's kindness leads another to change their ways to to, to repent, if you will. And this was the case with a lady named Victoria Ruvolo and an 18-year-old boy named Ryan Cushing. On a November evening in 2004, Victoria Ruvolo was driving back to her home on Long Island after attending her niece's dance recital. And what came next was something that no one was expecting. As she was driving on the road, uh, headed in the opposite direction was a silver Nissan. And uh, in this Nissan were a bunch of teenagers who had just stolen a credit card and bought a bunch of things on the stolen credit card. One of the things they bought was a 20-pound frozen turkey. Now, apparently, one of the teen boys thought it would be funny to throw the frozen turkey at her oncoming car going in the opposite direction. It was at such a high rate of speed that when he did that, that... Turkey crashed through her window, shattered the window, bent her steering wheel in half and shattered almost every bone in her face. And She spent two weeks in a medically induced coma and she underwent a 10-hour facial reconstruction surgery along with months of rehabilitation. Nine months after that disastrous November evening, she was face-to-face with her offender in court. Ryan Cushing was no longer the cocky kid who he was nine months earlier. He was trembling in the courtroom. He was tearful. He was deeply apologetic. And people packed the courtroom to see him get his just punishment. Then the judge's sentence enraged them. He got six months of jail time, only six months behind bars. The courtroom erupted. Every single person objected. Every single person objected except Victoria Rivolo. See, the reduced sentence was actually her idea. The months leading up to that, she was in conversation with the DA, and she was so insistent to the DA that he does not go serious on her because she wanted to be kind to him. She wanted him to get a lenient sentence. And in court that day, the boy walked over, and she embraced him, and she started rubbing his head as he cried and, and said how sorry he was. And in full view of the judge and crowd, here's what she said to him. She said simply, I forgive you. I want your life to be the best it can be. And then some months later, while reading a, a formal statement in the court, Ryan Cushing turned to Ravolo and told her this, said, your ability to forgive has had a profound effect on me. It's already made a positive change in my life. And that day, the judge looked at Cushing and and assured him that he truly had been given such an extraordinary gift. And that extraordinary kindness that, that Ravolo demonstrated to him that day, those months, was an extraordinary gift. It was her merciful and grace-filled kindness that led to his repentance, his turning away from his old ways. Much the same way the kindness of God leads us to repentance. Much the same way that Joseph demonstrates utter kindness to his brothers in Genesis chapter 43, which is the next chapter we come to this morning in our study through the life of Joseph. Now, if you recall from last week, we left off with Joseph, the Hebrew, whom God raised to be second in command in all of Egypt. Remember, he was 17 years old when his brothers sold him into slavery, And then when he was about 30, through all ups and downs and and prison sentences and everything else, false accusations, when he was about 30, um, he's in prison and Pharaoh has a dream, only Joseph can interpret it, God gives Joseph the interpretation, he tells Pharaoh what it is, and Pharaoh ends up releasing him and putting him in charge of everything. And so there have been uh, seven years, if you remember that dream, there was seven years of uh, flourishment, of flourishing crops, and there was going to be seven years of famine. So during those seven years, they start to uh, preserve everything, they they put uh, everything in the storehouses, they save lots of grain, and then those seven years comes to an end, and then the seven years of famine begins. And all that famine was in Egypt, and it was all throughout Canaan. Remember, Canaan is where Joseph's father and brothers and family lived. So we left off last week in Genesis chapter 42. We see some of Joseph's brothers visiting Egypt for the first time. They want to go there to buy some grain. And they come face to face with the now 37-year-old Joseph who looks like an Egyptian. They have no idea who he is. Remember, it's been 20 plus years. He, He was, at this point, as a Hebrew, he probably had long hair, maybe a beard. Now he's completely shaven, bald, in Egyptian clothing. They don't know who he is. And last, in Genesis 42, what we saw is Joseph starts to test his brothers. He takes Simeon and puts him in prison, and then he takes the money that they used to buy the grain, and he puts it, has it put back into their money bags without them even realizing it, and then he tells them he'll release Simeon if they return with his younger brother Benjamin, and Benjamin was left in Canaan. So they leave Egypt with the grain, they leave Simeon behind there, and then they return to Canaan, they see their money there, and then you see uh, Jacob, the father, basically ends Genesis 42. He throws his hands up in the air and he essentially says, Joseph is dead, Simeon is dead, you want to take Benjamin, they're going to kill him too, it's not happening, no way. So what I want us to be paying special attention to as we come up on chapter 43 is how Joseph's merciful and gracious response to his brothers during their second trip to Egypt is a beautiful reflection of God's merciful and gracious response to both sinners and saints alike. We'll see how Joseph's kindness was instrumental in drawing his brothers to transformation, to repentance, which is a reflection of a beautiful gospel reality that spans all of history. The reality that the kindness of God leads to repentance The kindness of God leads to repentance. So let's jump into Genesis 43 and see this reality at play in Joseph's story. Genesis chapter 43, starting in verse 1. says, now the famine was still severe in the land. So when they had eaten all the grain they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go back and buy us a little more food. So Jacob and his family continue to face this terrible famine that's happening in the promised land, and they've now run out of the food that they brought back after their first trip to Egypt. Either they're going to die of starvation, and with their death comes the death of God's uh, previous promises to Abraham that he was going to bless the descendants of Abraham, make them into a great nation, and through Abraham, he was going to send the promised one, the Messiah, to come and offer redemption to all of humanity. So either they were going to die of starvation, and that was going to die with it, or Jacob's going to have to take a bite of some humble pie and send Benjamin and take a second trip. Verse three. But Judah said to him, Jacob, the man warned us solemnly, you will not see my face again unless your brother Benjamin is with you. If you will send our brother along with us, we will go down and buy food for you. But if you will not send him, we will not go down because the man said to us, you will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. So Judah reminds his father, Jacob, that Joseph wants to see their younger brother, Benjamin. So if they're going to take a second trip to Egypt, the only way they're going is if Benjamin comes with them. And this is something that Jacob is terrified of. Remember, he loves Benjamin as much as he loved Joseph because those were the two uh, sons of his favorite wife, Rachel, the one he really wanted to marry all along. Verse 6, Israel, Jacob, asked, Why did you bring this trouble on me by telling the man you had another brother? Now remember, Jacob's name means deceiver, right? It's a name he lived up to many times, so we're not surprised when we see this long pattern of deception emerge over and over again like it does here. And what he's essentially telling Judah is, and the brothers is, why'd you tell him the truth? Why didn't you just lie to him? That's what we do in this family. We've been doing it for generations. You should have just lied. But Jacob was a patriarch. He was carrying in his family God's promise of of redemption for all of humanity. See, he should have been saying to his sons, guys, we're in a dilemma. I have no idea what's going to happen. Things look bleak. Things look awful. But let's trust God. Let's pray to God. Let's trust that he's going to provide and that he has good out of this for all of us. Instead, Jacob reacts with fear. He reacts with suspicion. He reacts with negativity. He reacts with pride. He's forgetting that God's mercy is so much greater than all of his failures. See, Jacob's words and actions demonstrate that he doesn't truly understand the kindness of God and God's ability to uphold everything that he promised. It's not unlike the way many of us relate to God and our failures. We get so caught up in our sins and in our failures that we think we're, we're just too far gone for God. There's nothing he can possibly do with us. We've, we've woven this intricate web of lies and manipulation so that everyone sees the me that we want them to see, but not God. God sees the real us. So we try to hide from him. We try to ignore him or, or we tell ourselves that his mercy is not strong enough to really do anything for us because we really mess things up. And when we do this over and over over the course of years, we condition ourselves to live like, like practical atheists, living as if God doesn't exist or living as if he sovereignly can't uphold everything that he promised for us, which is why Jacob wasn't about to let Benjamin go. He's forgetting God's good plans and his precious promises. Look at verse 7. But the brothers keep insisting. They replied, The man questioned us closely about ourselves and our family. Is your father still living? He asked us. Do you have another brother? We simply answered his questions. How are we to know he would say, Bring your brother down here. And they're essentially saying, Dad, why are you getting mad at us for telling the truth? We're just honest. We're not going to continue that deception. We're just telling the truth. And then we really start to see how much Judah... Uh, one of the sons of Jacob, has matured over the past 20-some years because now he steps up to protect the family, and that's something he did not do 20 years ago when Joseph's life was on the line. Verse 8, Then Judah said to Israel his father, Send the boy along with me, and we will go at once so that we and you and our children may live and not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. As it is, if we would not delayed, we could have gone and returned twice. So Judah is uh, the oldest son of Jacob, still in good standing with his father. And from this moment on, we really see him become the leader out of all of his brothers, um, all the ones in Canaan. He's would, willing to put himself on the line, his life on the line for his younger brother, Benjamin, and he's clearly frustrated by his dad's denial and his dad's delay here. But Jacob does finally start to give in, even though it's pretty reluctantly. Picking up in verse 11. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be, then do this. Put some of the best products of the land in your bags and take them down to the man as a gift. A little balm and a little honey, some spices and myrrh, some pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the amount of silver with you, for you must return the silver that was put back into the mouths of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also and go back to the man at once. And may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man so that he will let your other brother and Benjamin come back with you. As for me, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. So Jacob reluctantly gives in to his sons here, but again he's trying to manipulate the situation. Right? He's essentially saying, "Pack all this stuff. Get 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 some bribes ready. You know, maybe he'll show favor to us if you bribe him." And the problem here is that. Jacob actually says a little bit too much. He should have ended his farewell speech. Look again at verse 14. It says, and may God Almighty, the Hebrew there is El Shaddai, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man so that he will let your other brother and Benjamin come back with you. If that was the end of it, excellent. But no, he takes the low road and he tacks on his whining and his self-pity. He doesn't stop for even one moment to consider the possibility that God was at work in all of this mess. God was at work in his family's situation. God was orchestrating everything for their good. If only he could see what God saw. If only he would know that the man in Egypt was actually going to be thrilled to be merciful to him. He was going to be thrilled to lavish him and his sons with grace and love. Now, of course, Jacob couldn't know that that man in Egypt was his long-lost son, Joseph, whom he thought was dead, But Jacob could have known and should have known that God is faithful, that God is kind, that God is merciful, that God is gracious. He should have known that God's kindness is totally separate from anything he can do to earn it or deserve it. And that's true for you too. That's true for all of us. If we truly grasp how kind and merciful God is. You wouldn't be so hung up with your failures, with with your hurts, with your hangups. You wouldn't feel the need to do things independently from God in your own strength without his help. You wouldn't feel the immense pressure of having to wallow in your desperate circumstances, even if they were caused by you. You need to know and remember that God's mercy displaces even your greatest failures. You need to remember that. I need to remember that. And this is something that Jacob would have been so better off if he had he remembered it. So let's see how this turns out for Jacob and the other sons. Verse 15. So the men took the gifts and double the amount of silver. And they took Benjamin also. They hurried down to Egypt and presented themselves to Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, take these men to my house, slaughter an animal, and prepare a meal. They're to eat with me at noon. So Joseph is seeing this from a distance. And this is what he's telling his steward to do. So the brothers make their second trip. Trek to Egypt. Now, their mission is essentially uh, fourfold, right? They're bringing their brother Benjamin to show good faith. They're trying to prove that they're not spies, as they were accused of, as we saw last week. And they also want to ransom their brother Simeon, and they also need to buy more food. So they arrive. Now, can you imagine all the questions and concerns that must have been going on in their mind throughout the, the, the traveling and, and as they arrive in Egypt? What's this guy going to do with Simeon? Is he going to kill him in front of us? What's he going to do with Benjamin? Is he going to take Benjamin from us? Is he going to just enslave all of us? Is he going to kill all of us? What's going, to go, what's going on? The brothers must have been trembling with immense fear and anxiety here. They don't know that Joseph sees them from a distance and is already having his steward prepare a feast for them. Verse 17. The man did as Joseph told him and took the men to Joseph's house. Now, the men were frightened when they were taken to his house. They thought, we were brought here because of the silver that was put back into our sacks the first time. He wants to attack us and overpower us and seize us as slaves and take our donkeys. Now, it's really interesting here in that the very thing they fear is the very thing they did to their brother Joseph 20 years ago. They think this powerful Egyptian wants to attack them and make them slaves the way they had attacked Joseph, taken his robe, and sold him into slavery. They're thinking of all the awful things that can happen, all the worst case scenarios that can play out. One thing they're not thinking, though, a thought that's not even on their mental radar is the possibility that God is also with them and he wants to lavish them with grace. Not that we can blame them because we also fail to consider God's grace pretty pretty often. We often fear the worst. We, we think about our lives and whatever it is that we're going through. Then we start to play out these worst case scenarios and we feel our anxiety starting to skyrocket and we get depressed or we get crippled with fear or we just fall back on our old coping mechanisms. And we do this over and over and over again. But the problem with this, right, is that we're thinking about ourselves. God's not even in that equation. That's messed up. <laughs> We've got to be thinking about God. We've forgotten that God's grace dispels even our greatest fears. And this is something the brothers also seem to have forgotten. Verse 19. So they went up to Joseph's steward and spoke to him at the entrance to the house. We beg your pardon, our Lord, they said. We came down here the first time to buy food. But at the place where we stopped for the night, we opened our sacks, and each of us found his silver, the exact weight in the mouth of his sack. So we brought it back with us. We've also brought additional silver with us to buy food. We don't know who put our silver in, back in our sacks. Now you can almost hear the trembling fear and, and crippling anxiety in their voices. I love what Chuck Swindoll says about this. In his book on Joseph, listen to what uh, Swindoll says. He says, guilt plagued these sons of Jacob. It weighed heavily on their shoulders and whispered in their ears. On more than a few occasions, they'd relived what they'd done to their younger brother Joseph over 20 years earlier. All the recent events to and from Egypt had pricked to their conscience. They remembered, but still, they had not yet fully repented of their evil ways. But they would, oh yes, they would. See, the the brothers, they were paralyzed by guilt, so they feared the worst. But Joseph he was dominated by grace, and he was actually planning the best. And if that doesn't sound like God, I don't know what does. Look at verse 23. This is what the, the servant says to the brothers. It's all right, he said. And The Hebrew word there simply says shalom. So this Egyptian is speaking their own language to them. He says, shalom, don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has given you treasure in your sacks. I received your silver. And then he brought Simeon out to them. So they're getting a theology lesson from this Egyptian, which is pretty cool. Now, the brothers never once considered that it was out of God's abundant grace that he restored that money to them. Why didn't they consider this? It can be that their fear and their guilt kept them from seeing God's hand of grace in their lives. And to top it off, Simeon is restored to them. That's it. That casually, Simeon comes out and is restored to his brothers. Verse 24. The steward then took the men into Joseph's house and gave them water to wash their feet and provided fodder for their donkeys. They prepared their gifts for Joseph's arrival at noon because now they had heard that they were to eat there. Now the brothers must really, really be confused by all of this at this point, right? They show up to Egypt with Benjamin, they show up with money, and they show up with gifts. Instead, they're taken to the Egyptian prime minister's house. They're pampered and they're told to prepare for a feast. Verse 26, when Joseph came home, they presented to him the gifts they had brought into the house, and they bowed down before him to the ground. He asked them how they were, and then he said, how's your aged father you told me about? Is he still living? And they replied, your servant, our father, is still alive and well. And they bowed down, prostrating themselves before him. The 11 brothers bow to Joseph, just as Joseph had dreamed 20 plus years ago. And notice how gentle and gracious Joseph is with them. He's not vindictive. He's not trying to get back at them. He's not angry. He's not demanding. He's gentle. He's kind. Verse 29. As he looked about and saw his brother Benjamin, his own mother's son, he asked, Is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? And he said, God, be gracious to you, my son. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and wept there. Now remember, Benjamin is Joseph's only uh, full brother. He sees Benjamin, he he blesses him, and then he almost loses his composure and likely his hidden identity in front of his brothers. Verse 31, after he had washed his face, he came out and controlling himself said, Serve the food. They served him by himself, the brothers by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews, for that's detestable to Egyptians. See, the Egyptians were known to have uh, having an aversion to eating with, with foreigners. It was like taboo for them. And so it's a pretty funny sight that they're all getting ready for lunch, but they're all sitting at different tables. This is like the introvert's dream meal right here. All the introverts said Amen. Amen. Verse 33, the men had been seated before him in the order of their ages, from the firstborn to the youngest, and they looked at each other in astonishment. When portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's. So they feasted and drank freely with him. So the brothers looking at each other in complete amazement must be wondering how in the world this Egyptian man could possibly know their birth order from oldest to youngest. I read somewhere that actually statistically to get that right, there are 11 people in order. It's like, like a one in four million chance. So to top off their astonishment and curiosity, Joseph also serves Benjamin five times the amount that he serves the other brothers. Why? See, he's testing them to see if they've truly changed. Remember how jealous they were of Joseph's favoritism, of, of Joseph's uh, special treatment as the favored a son of his father. He now wants to see if they're still the same jealous people that they were back then. Imagine his surprise when they pass this test with flying colors because the chapter ends by telling us that the brothers feasted and drank freely with the Egyptian prime minister. In other words, they had a party with him. They They partied. Now place yourself in the sandals of the brothers. They were anxious. They were fearful. They were guilty as they felt guilty as they traveled along the road to Egypt and arrived in Egypt. They were probably expecting any number of things to happen. Things like slavery, things even like death, violence. What they did not expect was a feast in their honor. See, this was a great day for Joseph. And for his brothers, things really seem to start turning at this point in Joseph's story. They they really seem to start making strides toward repentance. One preacher, a guy named Alan Ross, put it this way about Genesis 43. He says, in Genesis 43, the brothers promise to take the blame for any catastrophe. They're showing responsibility. They acknowledge their culpability and made restitution for the money in their sacks. They're showing honesty. They retrieved their brother from prison in Egypt. They're showing unity. They recognized that God was at work in their midst. They're showing belief. And they rejoiced in their provisions, even when a brother was receiving more than they were. Gratitude. That's a complete 180 from the brothers we knew 20 plus years ago. See, the kindness of Joseph begins to, to unravel all of the garbage in their lives, all, everything that they've done, and, and they start to repent. They start to do a 180, You see, it was Joseph's kindness that encouraged their transformation, that encouraged their repentance. It was the mercy and the grace the brothers were given that day that encourages all of this. They received favor they hadn't earned. They received favor that they didn't deserve and they were overloaded with an abundance of provisions they can never repay. Joseph, moved by God, And his mercy and his grace, he was determined to forgive and to show that same grace and that same mercy to his own brothers who had harmed him. He wasn't interested in reminding them of their failures. He wasn't interested in rehashing the past. He wasn't interested in telling them all the ways they messed him up. He wasn't interested in any of that. He just wanted to show them love. God used Joseph's kindness to draw them to repentance. Now isn't that an obvious parallel at this point? See, for us, God uses the kindness of Jesus to draw us to repentance. The kindness of God leads to repentance. Now, there are two specific ways this plays out in our lives, similar to the way it played out in the lives of the brothers. Here's the first one. God's mercy displaces our failures. God's mercy, the mercy of God displaces our greatest failures. See, the mercy of God roots out our greatest failures, and it replaces our failures with his favor. You could, it's been said that mercy, you can define mercy as God not giving us what we deserve, right? Like Joseph's brothers, we deserve punishment, we deserve death, we deserve the just payoff for all of our sin, all of our rebellion, all of our mistakes, all of our corruption. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love for us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ Jesus. It is by grace you have been saved. Now, I don't know who needs to hear this this morning, but God is pursuing you with his mercy this very moment. God is pursuing you with his mercy. He's pursuing the person in this room who isn't a believer The person who thinks that they're too far gone for God to get a hold of, please don't think for one moment that your greatest failures can somehow eclipse God's mercy because they cannot. He wants you to turn to him and receive the forgiveness that was made possible by the death of his son. And he wants to give you the new life that was made possible by the resurrection of his son. And if you think you don't deserve his mercy, guess what? You're on to something. You're understanding what mercy is because none of us deserve it. Mercy wouldn't be mercy if it was deserved. That's the kind of loving God we have. And for the believer who needs to hear this, those of you who, who feel so guilty and, and, and somehow think that you've exhausted God's merciful storehouse and there was just no more he could give you, think again. I love what Lamentations 3 tells us. It says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God's mercies are new every morning. Amen. So what does that mean? It means his mercy never runs out. His mercy never dries up. Whatever your greatest failures are, God's mercy is greater still. His mercy never grows weary. It never gets weak. It never disappoints. His mercy never fails. His mercy is greater than your greatest challenges. His mercy is greater than your greatest sins. His mercy is greater than all your struggles, all your feelings of guilt. His mercies are new every morning. Instead of being blamed, God in his mercy forgives you. Instead of feeling guilty, God in his mercy frees you. And instead of experiencing punishment, which all of us deserve, his mercy and his grace invite us to sit at his table and feast with him God's mercy displaces our failures, amen and here's the second truth God's grace dispels our fears the grace of God dispels even our greatest of fears See, whereas God's mercy pardons us, his grace gives us an entire new life. See, mercy is what gave Joseph's brothers another chance. But it was the grace that invited them to feast with him. See, if mercy can be defined as God not giving us what we deserve, you can define grace as God giving us what we don't deserve, We don't deserve the love and the kindness that God lavishes on us. We don't deserve and can never earn the new life in Christ that he gives to us. We don't deserve the incredible spiritual blessings he abundantly pours into our lives. Because of his grace, we have nothing to fear. He graciously and sovereignly holds all of our tomorrows, all of our fears, all of our troubles in his hands, and he promises to be with us. He promises to guide us. He promises to protect us. He promises to strengthen us, to love us, and to work every minute detail of our lives out for our good and his glory. Amen? There is no dark night dark enough to hide you from the grace of God. There is no valley deep enough to keep you from the grace of God. There is no flight swift enough to carry you away from the grace of God. And if you fear that you've written too many checks on God's kindness account, or if you wonder whether God can do something with the mess you've made of your life, then grace is what you need. Give your heart to Christ, and he returns the favor. I love Ezekiel 36. God says, I will will give you a new heart and yes. I will put my spirit in you. When grace happens, we receive from God a new yes. heart. Yes. God's mercy displaces our failures and his grace dispels our fears. His kindness leads you to repentance. And there's perhaps no better illustration I can close of this morning uh, than thinking about the transforming kindness the lives of two men in our own church have received. Two men who graduate tonight at 7 p.m. At, from the Colony of Mercy. Which, if you didn't know, the Colony of Mercy is a Christ-centered addiction recovery program over at America's Keswick in Whiting. And um, we, we, do a, we support them. We, we, we love Keswick. We have partnership with them. We've seen many guys at Bayside, uh, including my own brother-in-law, go through the Colony of Mercy and, and find the, the, the truth of the gospel, fi- and, and through the gospel, find the victory that Christ offers them. And tonight, two other men are going to join their ranks, Eddie Freeman and John Restivo. I think they're both here. I didn't have them do this, but can you guys stand up real quick? I just want to praise God for you both. Thank you, guys. See, what amazing testimonies of God's grace and mercy these two men truly are. And before Christ, Eddie was a bit of a mess. <laughs> he was chasing the wrong things, he had the wrong priorities, and his life fell into a spiral, and one of the consequences of his actions uh, was getting divorced from his wife, Kira. Kira. But in God's perfect timing, he regenerated Eddie, who placed his faith in Christ. And as a result, Eddie found freedom from his addiction. He found hope in Christ. And at the same time, his ex-wife also came to learn about the kindness of God, and she placed her faith in Christ. See, they learned. They learned that all of their failures were wiped away at the cross and that all of their fears are cleansed because of the new life that was theirs in Christ. And so great is God's mercy and grace that he restored Eddie and Kira, and they rejoined themselves to one another as husband and wife just a few weeks ago. He is so good. And then there's John Restivo, another another billboard of God's grace and mercy. And I asked John to write a little bit, so I'm going to read some of what he wrote. Listen to what John had to say. John said this, My circumstances, upbringing, sin, flesh, and the devil led me down dark and hellish paths. I was once an abused child, abused sexually, physically, emotionally, and verbally, and I began the path of addiction starting at the age of nine. As an adult, I was reduced to a homeless shelter, and it spiraled so far out of control that I overdosed and was found dead on Route 37 in Toms River, face down. I later learned that doctors narcanned me four times, but I left that hospital, hospital, and I overdosed again shortly thereafter. But God... Yes. But God, who was rich in mercy, has changed my heart and positioned me to be in Christ, not counting my sins against me and fully forgiving me, assuring me that I am loved, accepted, healed, whole, complete in Christ. I thought it was over, that God would never use me again, but God, who is rich in mercy, showed me that belief was a lie. His kindness opened a door for a job for me at Harvey Cedars Bible Conference where I get to serve in ministry. I had nowhere to go, but God, who is rich in mercy, opened a door with housing for me. I had no car, but God used a man from Bayside who gave me a car. I thought I would never see my kids again nor talk to them, but I have been slowly been given opportunities to begin restoring those relationships. He says, I have peace today, I am loved today, I am growing in my knowledge of who I am and whose I am, all as a result of God's kindness who took on himself what I deserved and gave me that which I don't deserve, mercy and grace. He turned it all around and then he says this, I believe it's all a result of God's kindness that led me to repentance. Praise God for His kindness, Church. The kindness of God leads to repentance. Would you stand and close in prayer with me? Jesus, we do thank you for your kindness, for your love, for your grace, for your mercy, Father. I pray for anybody in this room right now who is who knows they're in desperate need of that mercy, Lord. Illuminate their hearts with the truth that you are pursuing them at this very moment with your mercy. Lord, that you want them simply to turn away from what they're they're headed toward and simply turn to you and receive from you all that you have in store for them, all that you offer to them because of the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, thank you for your great mercy. Lord, I pray that you would continue to teach us truly how magnificent your mercy is. Lord, we can't fully comprehend it, but to the extent that we can, Lord, let it change us, let it transform us. And thank you that your mercy comes to us apart from anything we can do to deserve it. Thank you that your grace comes to us apart from anything we can do to earn it. Lord, you are good, you are kind, you are gentle, you are faithful. And you satisfied your wrath at the cross of Christ. And in turn, you offer us the righteousness of Jesus himself and the new life by which he was raised with and that you want to so desperately give to each one of us, Lord. So I pray for anybody in this room who has yet to receive that new life from you, Lord, even in the stillness of these moments or in the song to come, that they would simply say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I need Jesus. Save me. And God, for those of us who are your children, Lord, help us to live in your mercy and your grace. It's so easy to get distracted from life, from circumstances, from uh, difficult situations. Lord, help us to always remember and see your sovereign hand at work, guiding all of it. Lord, and give us the faith that we need to trust in you. Lord, transform each one of us from the inside out. And thank you for your kindness. Thank you that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. All God's children said in Jesus' name, amen.